I only came across that version of those words in preparing for today, and I'm very grateful. I commend them to you. Do not be afraid. I have redeemed you. And now the message this morning, based on the fiery furnace and the story of the fiery furnace. Do not be afraid. I am with you. The link with Isaiah, of course, is because Isaiah says, when you walk through the waters and when you go through the fire, the waters won't overcome you and the fire will not destroy you. So, do not be afraid. I am with you. Can we allow God's word to get right inside us today? I'm just I'm asking that you now, just in the quiet of your heart, just allow God's spirit to get beneath your defenses. And they could be defenses <clears throat> saying, I'm not afraid anyway, or defenses because you're overwhelmed. Allow God to speak in his way this morning. The unique testimony of the Jewish scriptures is that God is with his people all the time and in everything. Why unique? The tabernacle, sisters and brothers, hold on to that. Forty years, God is walking with his people. Have you got that? He's not looking down. The tabernacle is in the middle. He is walking despite their foibles and their faithfulness. God the Father is with us. In the New Testament, prefigured in the Old, we have the truth supremely revealed that God is with us. And of course, some of you are immediately thinking, Emmanuel. Are you not? That is Jesus. Even unto death, God the Son. The Jewish scriptures, God the Father. The New Testament, God the Son. And the truth of Easter and Pentecost is, as Jesus promised, that God is still with us. But now that presence is universal. God the Holy Spirit. When Jesus commands his disciples to go into all the earth, I will be with you until the end of the age. That's what he says. So this morning, we give our attention to a single story and a single passage of the Bible, but we're right at the heart of biblical truth. This isn't an exception. It is unique. But the glorious blood-stained strand that runs through every part of the scriptures, and as we will see, the testimony of God's people, is don't be afraid, I will be with you. Now the story has three things that it just makes abundantly clear. It reminds us of three things. And the first is this, the harsh realities of a fallen world. The harsh realities of a fallen world. The Bible is a faithful record that there are painful truths and terrible suffering in the world in which we live. One of the things about someone who chooses to follow Jesus and then to take up the scriptures and read God's word is that suffering comes as no surprise. 
What I mean is, when we suffer, we discover that we've joined the human race. All human beings experience pain, anxiety, separation and loss. There are, of course, natural disasters and afflictions that come upon some. There are vast inequalities that cause millions to struggle to survive. And there is this awful truth that when human beings and governments take it into their hands to create a better world, I'll give you some examples, Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, just to give you some examples, I'm not going to delve into the great continent of Africa today. When human beings take it into their hands to create a better world, the result is tragic. So it is a fact that to live with integrity in this world comes at great cost. The story told in Daniel chapter 3 is about living with integrity. Just hold on to that word. Not living in compartments, but living with integrity the whole of our lives, 168 hours a week. The challenge to the three men, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, that helps you if you want to get more smarties from them, by the way, right? Remember those. The specific challenge was a golden statue, huge statue. By the way, we're not, not thinking about mountains or trees around it. We've got it so you can't miss it. And there are rules associated with it. You know what it is. When, when the trumpets blast, when the, the, the noise is given, then everyone has to stop what they're doing and bow to the statue. Now, that's a specific thing. But the issue of bowing to a statue of idolatry is common to every testing and temptation, to every individual group and culture that seek to live with integrity. Now, a very simple thing would be to sort of nod, do you see? Nod to the statue, go by, or do a sort of what we used to call a royal wave. Did we call it a royal wave? I don't know. I'm thinking of Prince Philip. How did he wave? I'm not sure he did wave, did he? It's an interesting question. But you could find ways, you could find ways of sort of compromising. You get the message? Not throwing yourself face down, so but this now, for these three men who live with integrity, is something they cannot do. And, and in the story, it's perfectly clear. They say, this, there is no way we can live with integrity and bow to this statue. The scriptures make it clear that the central place in any life, any group, is reserved for God the holy God. By the way, I mentioned the tabernacle. The whole arrangement of these people going through the wilderness was that until the tabernacle was set up, no one else could put a tent up because you didn't know where to put your tent. Your tent had to be based north, south, east, or west in relation to the tabernacle. But the story of human history, you could, with every bit of history, some of you are doing it at school or maybe at college, you could put a subtitle is idolatry because you find all the way through, and it's true in our lives too, there are things that tend to take the place of God. They might not seem like a great golden statue, 
but sadly they're there. And one of the things we sometimes see if we're outsiders, we can see that when insiders can't. So when people come to, to Europe, to the UK, they can see how that we've exchanged the worship of the true God in Christ for useless, pathetic idols like celebrity, money, satisfaction, consumption, and so on. Building bigger, better houses and gardens and so on. But in history, there are some who resist the temptation to idolatry. And these three men did that. Ruth and I, for our daily prayers, use different prayer diaries from groups like Barnabas and so on. I, I guess some of us do this, but we, we have a little folder of, of things, daily prayers. One of the things we find is that it's a humbling experience as we get to know the nations of the world. Last week, North Korea, China, and, and so it goes on, Eritrea and Somalia, just getting, making sure that we're always being stretched. One of the humbling experiences is how often we hear about Christians who are being persecuted or Christians <clears throat> who are going to, to share with others and, and terrible things happen to them, but they're, they're still living with integrity. In Pakistan, with the blasphemy laws, I mean, once you're accused of blasphemy, you're really in trouble. In prison, a mother or father in prison for 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is. And by the way, prison, don't think of anything neat or, you know, sanitized. Um, and still, and still living with integrity. No, no question of giving up. Always being told. This is what I found with Russian Christians when they used to go to the Soviet Union in the communist era. I would be with people who have been tortured and starved. And they would tell me of their experience. And he simply realized in their presence they had integrity. I didn't feel worthy of being in the same room with them. Because nothing was going to touch them. I don't know how to put this, but nothing. I remember one, Victor, he actually came to our house and stayed. And he said, the first thing with the torture you have to do is to get the message through. They can do anything they like to you, but it won't change you. You're a lost case. Now that sounds a simple thing to say. But I tell you, Victor had integrity. I have seen people, I've been with people who had integrity. And it may be, that you today have experienced the cost of following Jesus with integrity. If not, <clears throat> sisters and brothers, be ready. Because our calling to follow Jesus is to live with integrity that will not compromise when the compromise... I don't mean we shouldn't be people who are adaptable and so on. That's not the issue. But when the chips are down and when it's perfectly clear that we are asked to do something that is simply wrong, that's when the challenge comes. So the harsh realities of the of daily life are there in this story. Now the second thing in the story is the truth of God's presence. The promise, I am with you. This is the crucial truth, the rock on which this story is built. God 
is present. He's not above and beyond suffering, and nor are we his followers. He never promised or promises a rose garden, immunity for those who serve him. When I've had the privilege of preparing people for marriage or baptism, it's always been my duty to point out that this is not a way of getting immunity to suffering. That somehow there is a prosperity gospel which says, if you follow Jesus, then everything's going to be all right in worldly terms. That's not true. And so it is in this story that we find God's presence in the midst of the hottest furnace. Can I just just share with you this? As a student of the Bible, you can't work on producing a new Bible without going into detail in every part, that in the Jewish scriptures where you find God's presence, it's always mysterious. There are always questions. You can never put it in a bottle, or the words always, when you go back to them, you find, hold it a minute, what's going on? It's a bit like, if I may say so, Moses in the burning bush. What's going on here? What's going on here? The bush is burning, but it's not consumed. Well, how can there be fire without it consuming something? Always there is something mysterious. And in the fiery furnace story, we've got the hallmark of God's presence that it's mysterious. And by the way, not a fringe presence, not that God is with you, so he's somehow a spectator, somehow who's rooting for you, He's shouting from the stands, God, go on! No, no. A God who is with us in the midst. When Eugene Peterson coined that wonderful phrase for the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, moved into our neighborhood. That's it. Just coming right inside. One, as they say in Yorkshire, one of us. You can study the truth of God's presence right through the scriptures. We can't do that this morning. <clears throat> Always hoping, Ben, we might have Bible studies in years to come and we can come and I'll have the privilege of opening up some of the scriptures. Um, if you work on a Bible, your heart is full of what you discover. A hallmark of God's presence in the scriptures is that in some ways it's always unique. Because God is God. To say, Lord, you did that yesterday, is not to constrain God to, to act in the same way tomorrow. But God is God. And we have a simple choice. We either bow and acknowledge he's God, or we have to just leave him. So, look at these examples of God in the Jewish scriptures. Do you remember the visit of three strangers to Abraham? So often you're not quite sure. Is it an angel? Is it three? Is it God? The burning bush, Sinai, the tabernacle, the pillars of cloud and fire, Balaam's ass, Isaiah, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Ezekiel's vision, the New Testament, Peter is fishing and then he says to Jesus, depart from me. Paul on the road to Damascus, John on Patmos. What I'm trying to say to you is right through the scriptures you find it's obviously it's God, but always he is God because he is meeting uniquely on his terms. 
If the golden idol represents the epitome of idolatry now, because here we have it, the cross of Jesus Christ exemplifies most fully and supremely the truth of God's presence. The cross represents God's presence. The cross is a close relation to the fiery furnace. In Christ, God moved into our lives, into our neighborhood, and he shares every experience with us. But there's more. Jesus is lifted up so that all can see him. John chapter 12 just as the golden statue is there. And the serpent in the wilderness, do you remember? Lifted up. And what we have in the, in the cross is God's answer to the golden statue. Jesus on the cross takes on himself the sum total of the harsh realities of human life. Sickness, hypocrisy, hate. All compressed unbearably. My God, why have you forsaken me? And yet we discover through the resurrection that there has been, there is, there will be nothing that can come between God and us in Christ. He is inseparably with us. He will never, no never, no never forsake. That's the truth. Paul put it so beautifully in Romans, Romans 8. And yet there is more. Through it, there comes a promise of a presence right in the middle of storms, floods, and fire across the world. Through this story and through the cross, God is with us in the midst. There comes the truth that God is always with us in all circumstances. So this story (coughs) tells us of the truth of God's presence, which is confirmed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come to the third part of the story, (coughs) the testimony, the testimony that comes through what happened. So often in the scriptures, I'm sure people have written books on this, the people who speak the truth are the enemies. Ecclesiastes is something Ruth and I have been reading this, this week. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you read it, you discover there's so much truth in Ecclesiastes. Someone looking at Jesus. He saved others, himself he cannot save. This is mocking him. Couldn't be truer. In order to save you and me, he couldn't save himself. That's the fact of the matter. And if you go through the scriptures, you find this. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, (coughs) and he ends up with his testimony... He says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. By the way, they're no longer bound. So the fire seems to have burnt, do you see? Burnt their their ropes, (coughs) but not them. I don't know, but, but, but he says this. There is someone looking like a son of the gods. And then... He says, praise be to God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, that's his view, and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, defied my command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree, (coughs) then 
he goes on to say, now their God must be recognized. This is the testimony of this story, the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. One of the ways I try, in different ways when writing or with students, to describe the Bible, you, you can describe it in different ways. You can say it's um, 66 books, it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, in different ways. You can say it's the Word of God, all, sort, all sorts of true things. <laughs> I put to you that a very, very neglected way of seeing the Bible is it's a testimony of in people who've encountered the living God. A testimony of people who've encountered the living God. I put that to you. And in that way, it becomes alive. Not, not simply a book, not just a record of God's commands, but a testimony. You say, what about the commandments and Leviticus? I, I tell you, go to Sinai in your imagination and you'll find that the law is a testimony of people who encounter the living God. That's what it is. The church, ultimately, is a collection of people who are a testimony to the presence of the living God. Something that unites us over the years, we've, we've journeyed together. I was saying this to Ben. We were saying this in the vestry as we were praying. And, and I know a lot of the story of this church. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And you've come to know quite a bit about Mill Grove, some of you. I know, you know, just think of the two of you, Barbara and David. You've come to know individuals and so on. And Mill Grove is a testimony to God's faithfulness. It's not, it's not a testimony to anything else. It's not about something human beings are saying we've done. Not a trace of it. We keep on being amazed and surprised at the way God goes before us, but supremely is with us. And our calling, your calling as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's calling was, was to, to give testimony. To give testimony to what we've experienced of the living God in our lives. Not, not to pass on what we heard someone else said, but to be faithful to our calling. Now, sometimes it will be to talk of others, as I've talked about Victor, the Russian Christian. But my testimony is I was with him in Moscow in the communist era. And my testimony is when I spoke to his wife and others that he was faithful. So that's my testimony I pass on. Do you see what I mean? I'm not, this isn't second hand. This is me. I've been with him. And always when you're reading, you, you were in 3 John yesterday, I think, weren't you? Is that right? But if you look at 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, it's a testimony of John. That's what it is. Our hands have handled. Our eyes have seen. We've heard with our ears. This is real. And our calling is nothing second-hand. It is all, always testimony. With that in mind, I want to close with a testimony. And this is going to be painful. But it is true. Some of you know I've spent quite a lot of my life, the last 20 years or more, in India. Um, working on the testimony of one of the world's great Christians, Pandita Ramabai. And the time will come, God willing, when the book is out and then the film.
While I was there, this incident happened. There were some missionaries, the Staines family. This is Graham Staines, his wife Esther, um, a daughter, sorry, Gladys, a daughter Esther, and two boys. And they worked among those with leprosy in Orissa. One, one night, the father and the two boys were having a, a break, and they'd left the, the wife, Gladys, and daughter, Esther, and they were in a camper van in, in a village that, um, where they were, were uh, you know, many friends. But in the early morning, a group came running from the fields armed with lattes and trishals, tridents, coming to the station wagon. The leader of the group struck first, wielding an axe at the tires, deflating them. The others broke the windows and prevented Graham Staines and his two sons from leaving the wagon. The three were wounded. But then the leader put straw under the vehicle and torched it, and seconds later the vehicle was on fire. Graham Staines held his two sons close to him, <clears throat> and the killers stood there and watched the three roast alive as the fire consumed the vehicle. Someone approached with water to douse the flame, but was scared away. The group were shouting, Maro, Maro, Zindabad, smashing the windows with bars and sticks. And you might say, Keith, that spoils it all. You've told the story of Shadrach, Misha, and Abednego, and now you're telling a story of... <clears throat> well, I'm telling a story of three people in a fire, aren't I, again? Aren't I? And you might say, well, where's God in that? At the funeral service, Gladys and her daughter Esther said, I, Gladys said this, I'm willing to take all that has happened and to forgive. I love India. Mother and daughter committed themselves to carrying on the work of Graham and his two sons. The rest of the book I've been reading is actually from Indian newspapers, the Times of India and more. While I was there, I was there when it happened, by the way, and so I collected newspaper cuttings. And all over India, the testimony was this, that Hindus would never have done what the Stains did to give up their lives to be with lepers. It was followers of Jesus. This is the, the secular newspapers are writing. And their testimony, like the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, was that God is faithful. Gladys Staines, my husband 
and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I will continue to be here and serve the needy. Esther, the daughter, I praise the Lord. He found my father worthy to die for him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace expecting to die and ready to die. God was with them, and their testimony was that he rescued them. It so happens, and I just want Ruth to be prepared for this, that as I was preparing this story about the three men in the fiery furnace, and then the three men, that's the stains in India, it reminded me of three others who died in a fire. They were Ruth's father, Ruth's mother, and Ruth's brother. Ruth's brother was on the way back to Israel as a missionary seeking to bring peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And on the M1, a lorry crashed into their car and they were burned. And Ruth and I were at the funeral service and we sang how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, with three coffins there. I mention that because the fact is that our testimony, my friends, from Mill Grove, is not about us being outside of things, not about having you know, God protecting us from all suffering. It is simply that in our brokenness and our lostness, our testimony is God has been faithful and he hasn't left us. And still, as far as we can, I and others continue to work for peace between Palestinians and Israelis. And so that is the story. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. Ben, in your loss in your family, that was a prayer many of us prayed. I remember praying it. It just happened there was another pastor near us, Kieran, in Walthamstow, would you believe it, and, and he lost his wife and had two young children. And I could hardly get over what was going on. Lord, what's happening here? And all I could pray is, Lord, please be with them. And so it is, my friends, that the testimony carries on. The Lord is risen. He has promised, God has promised, he, be, he will be with us. And he was, he is, and he will be. And when we arrive around the wounded lamb who was slain, reunited with these people, we will find our testimony is he was with us. And we'll discover he was closer than we dared to believe. And he felt our pain more than we will ever know. And also that he brought joy and light and love and peace, working all things together for good until the time 
when the whole of creation bows and says, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, blessing be to him. Not just Nebuchadnezzar, but the whole of creation.